Hello and welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And in today's episode, I have the privilege of chatting with the legend of motorsport, Mr. Mark Weber. And Mark has so many tremendous insights into optimizing human performance throughout this episode. Just an extraordinary man that's gone from country Australia to the pinnacle of motorsport, standing on the top step of the dais at the Monaco Grand Prix, amongst others. And just an incredible story. I I love at one point in this episode, he describes the impact of driving a Formula One car around a race circuit as like having a a mini car crash at every corner. Just the, the sheer force that they put their bodies through just to control those machines and and what it takes to prepare themselves both mentally, physically, emotionally, in every aspect to get ready to drive these machines all around the world. And we, we discussed jet lag and everything else in between of, of how to get to these races prepared. And, and the one thing I've loved about Mark's story is when he's retired from professional racing is that he's kept moving forward. He's never stopped. And, and I found him personally a, a true inspiration in somebody that's keeps reinventing himself and and keeps moving forward. Um, Please let me know what you think about this episode and the show in general, whether that's on social media or um, any of the reviews that you give me on any of the the apps. I I really appreciate it. Please subscribe to your app of choice. Um, And yeah, until next time, guys, enjoy this one. I really did. Before we start, I've got to give a quick shout out to my friends at Athletic Greens that helped make this show possible. I love this company and I love their all-in-one daily drink. It's become a part of my morning routine. You see, when I retired from professional sport, I thought, oh, great, I, I won't have to worry about any more injuries and sickness would be a thing of the past. But as it would happen, I felt like my immune system decided to retire as well. So I was looking for something that was easy to use and that would support my immunity, boost my energy and just help with my recovery and my gut health. And and I found that with Athletic Greens. And honestly, I can't believe a green drink sourced from Whole Foods can actually taste so good. Personally, I love it. And there's no hassle. It's delivered straight to your door. And it's a highly absorbable powder that takes seconds to mix with water. So there's no clumpiness to deal with. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery, probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin C and zinc nitrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. Look, even with a balanced diet, it's difficult to cover all your nutritional needs, but that's where Athletic Greens can really help. Their daily drink is like a nutritional insurance for your body. It's NSF certified for sport and there's no harmful chemicals, no GMOs, no funny additives. Honestly, I can't recommend Athletic Greens enough. Whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system or address your gut health, now's a perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. There's a great offer going on now for you to give a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free daily travel packs with your first purchase. That's a $79 added value. And Athletic Greens is delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. All right, my guest today is one of the world's all-time high performers. His rise from country Australia to the pinnacle of motorsport is an incredibly inspiring and entertaining story. 12 years in the cutthroat billion-dollar industry of Formula One motor racing winning nine Formula One Grand Prix and finishing on the podium in the overall Drivers' Championship three times. Post-Formula One, he raced for Porsche in the World Endurance Car Championship, where he won the world title in 2015. 
He retired from professional racing in 2016, but he hasn't stopped. His transition's seamless from racing to Porsche, Red Bull and Rolex ambassador and TV pundit and public speaker. He's had his fair share of bumps and shunts, but he continued to keep moving forward. He's been a good mate of mine for over a decade and a great endurance athlete in his own right, a salt-of-the-earth good guy and someone I truly take inspiration from. Welcome and thank you for joining me on BW Champions, Mr. Mark Webber. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. Good, buddy. Yeah, it's um, nice to chat. In extraordinary times, but uh, yeah, good to, uh, good to catch up, buddy. I know, mate. Where, where are you at the moment in the world? You're moving around the whole time, huh? Yeah, quite a bit of travel, but um, obviously with the virus, uh, post Melbourne Grand Prix, which obviously the event that never happened, um, still in Noosa in Queensland. So, um, but we're heading back uh, to Europe pretty soon. In the uh, well, we'll see when we can get some flights, but um, we'll be heading back there soon. Yeah, it's, it is incredible times, and uh, you know, thankfully for me, you're just, you're one of the busiest people I know. But I think this. Uh, you know, having this chat with you, I've kind of wanted to chat to you for months and it's almost like this has given me the opportunity. So in a, in a selfish <laughs> way, I'm, I'm glad that we're getting this time just to chat nah. because, you know, we've nah. missed each other so many times these last three to four years. Um, you know, I, I think you're in Colorado and then I miss you by a week and then we're in Europe and we miss you by a week and, and the same with Australia. So it's kind of, you're always on the go and are you having this time just to be able to take a bit of downtime or have you been sort of, busy putting fires out what's it what's it been like for you uh yeah well well first of all first of all mate yeah i think um we have yeah we've, we've we've missed each other a little bit here and there i've really enjoyed some of your other guests on the show it's been great uh seeing you drop into this into this space too mate and i think that um you know i'm not mate, i'm not massive on banging on about myself i love listening to other people's stories but um you know coming from yourself who's you know obviously done absolutely plenty yourself so i'm, I'm more than happy to uh to have a chat to you so it's it's worked out well and and yeah a bit more time on my hands but uh basically yeah there's not a huge amount to do mate at the moment I, you know, the first few weeks was was sort of uh yeah, a bit a bit novel wasn't it now the novelty sort of worn off obviously it's, it's still a very serious situation in the world we know that but um yeah got to try and keep an eye on the prize out the other end and make sure obviously your immediate family are well and healthy and, and located in good good places uh try to be generous where you can in different other areas with uh, with um with whatever you can do to to try and make a bit of a difference and uh yeah come out the other end of it as positive as possible yeah i mean there have been some positive takeaways i think what did i see the other day i think garmin put something out where you know they can they can kind of get an understanding of the amount the people are using their watches around the world and i think i saw that it was almost the garmin volume of people walking and exercising it almost doubled or tripled you know during this whole stay at home um lockdown that we're in but it, it was amazing to see people starting to actually get out and exercise a little bit more because they've got this time on their hands and the other thing is families tend to be spending a lot more time together <laughs> for good or bad i think for most for some people but i think it's been really good that we've been forced almost to check on it, check in on each other a little bit and, um, and almost like it's a little reboot. I think the only, the only issue with it all is that we don't know how long. I think if people said, look, we did this every, every year for six weeks to eight weeks, we'd all be like, yeah, let's do it. I think it's, it's good for the planet. It's good for our families. It's, it's good for many reasons, but I think right now we're kind of like, okay, <laughs> when's it going to end and what, what's the plan going forward? Yeah, no, the tail is uh, is a challenge, and obviously every country's got a, a different 
mm. a different journey to go on um, and whether it's a second wave or, or whatnot and, and how, which obviously some countries are going through that now and, and some countries are at the peak of their first wave, even like the UK at the moment. So, um, yeah, but I agree, mate. People getting out, backing themselves, having a crack, I think that's really important, which both of you, uh, you and I, I know is a, is a really important ingredient, I think, for people to, um, without being condescending or patronising, but it's just great to see people out um, yeah, like, okay, let's have a look. Let's get out with, either with the family or if we can go for a walk, if we can go for a little jog or grab a bike, um, whatever. So I think mm. this this forced layoff has given people an opportunity to to, to try and do things they might not have, have done even at all in their life or pick up some old hobbies, which is which is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, you're not in a bad place in the world, I guess, you know, Noosa this time of year. You've got the mountain biking, you've got the surf, you've got some beautiful running trails. Um, I, I mean, it's you, you make the best of the, you know, a, a poor situation. So are you missing, I mean, you're somebody, like I said, that being an ambassador for Porsche, Red Bull, Rolex, amongst others, I think you've got other things. And then being, you know, I think Channel 4 in the UK for the Formula One, Channel 10 in Australia, Formula One commentary work, you're on the go, you know. It seems to me all year round, you you, you don't stop. Um, are you missing that kind of energy or have you just embracing it, being able to just put your feet up for a little bit? Yeah, I have enjoyed this little uh, yeah. this little pit stop, uh, even though it was sort of in a bizarre way um, and from a completely selfish perspective, obviously, at the start of the year where you've just sort of, you have already recharged your batteries to a degree. So um, the timing of it was was um, a bit bizarre because, yeah, I suppose at the end of a long year, you, you are looking for a bit of a break, which we generally have. But, um, well, I do in terms of, yeah, the travel, if it's between 70 or 80 flights, um, sometimes going pretty hard, um, as you say. And and being, you know, from the motorsport sector, uh, it is a global sport. Um, as you mentioned in the intro, um, there's a lot of, you know, big global partners which, uh, which sort of ask for my presence in different locations around the world. So I've got to travel there. I am, I am, um, it doesn't really have the same impact when I'm on zoom. So, um, which we're learning a lot about now, obviously in terms of how it's, the world is going to look very, very different post this. I don't think we're going to unlearn any of these new habits we've had by the way. But I think, you know, before that, um, I was, I was so fortunate to have good people around me to guide me into the next sort of uh, next phase, if you like. And motorsport continues to give, um to me i enjoy you know for example the commentating side you know to be a bit of a pun and, and try and bring the people closer to our sport because it's a really hard sport to understand in many ways in terms of what's going on because we are invisible we've got a helmet on we're in there and we just drive around in circles effectively but um it's pretty <laughs> spectacular yes to watch but to try and get the people closer to the sport um is enjoyable and then yeah working on of course with 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 porsche and and Red Bull and Rolex and the other brands, um, they are world-class. They're, they're great companies and, and, and nearly every day is a school day too because I see it as, as supporting them but also I learn a tremendous amount off those, you know, they're great people and, and they've got great vision. Mm. You mentioned the, the new world we live in with the Zoom and I've had a few meetings recently um, with CEOs of companies and pretty you know, high up, high performance of the world and, and they're at home and their wife is cooking curry in the background and the kid's running back. And, and yeah. I almost feel like this new world we live in, there's a little bit of the, the guard or the, the bravado is, is leaving. We're seeing authentic, real people, you know, across this, this uh, virtual platform that we're living in. It's been extraordinary to see just this, um, 
the conversations that I'm personally having with some of these people, it's, I don't know, now we're getting a look into people's lives and there's a real, sure. you yeah, know, there's less of the, the, the putting the suit on and the, 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 the sort of one-upping each other. It's kind of like, yeah, this, I, we're all in this together and I'm at home and the wife's cooking dinner and the kids want something from me. Hang on, buddy. And it's been, it's been fascinating to watch. And, you know, the one thing that's impressed me about you, uh, you know, we were both professional athletes for a long, long time. And, and when you live in that world, it's, it becomes, you put your blinders on and you, you're completely focused on what you need to get done. Uh, well, I was, and I, I know you were to some degree in, in that to get the most out of yourself. It was like, it was all in. Um, and, and then stepping away from that and that transitioning into the next path, uh, like I mentioned in the introduction, you've, you look like you've done it seamlessly. <laughs> like it looks not to say it was easy, but how has that been that transition? I, I, I look at life transitioning from one thing to another is one of the hardest things we do in life. And, you know, you've done that reasonably well. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that, um, and you're right, mate, about this, you know, Zoom and all the technology and the virtual stuff now with that. Uh, and it's, you took the words out of my mouth. I think it's like a lot of it's down to wardrobe, isn't it? And what, you know, the sort of perception of, of getting people at home and, and um, being pretty laid back. I think it's, it's quite humbling. It's good. You know, people have been sort of this good leveler. So I agree with that. Um, in terms of the, the sort of, I call it the glide slope, you know, when you, when you do stop your, your main profession, um, which, you know, I, I drove cars for a while and, you know, as you well know, mate, you are fully invested. You can't be really, you know, half pregnant. Um, I like the analogy that some of my special forces mates use, which is average is easy. That's why it's popular. You know, you don't want to be, you know, it's, um, you've got to be prepared to do something that others aren't. Um, and I had to be extremely boring and, and focused because I didn't have the most talent in the world. So I have to, I had to work really hard at it. Um, and I think that the glide slope post that decision was, it, it, I tried to plan it as best I could. I think it was important, and I got tremendous advice again off, you know, off Sir Jackie Stewart actually. And he was like, "Well, be very, very careful. I know your energies are pretty low now, um, and emotionally, it takes a lot to to, to com compete at that level. But if you go and effectively lie under a rock for for two or three years, um, you know, your currency, your your relevance, you know, all those type of things um, can drop off really, really, really quick. And, and his advice was to to stay on the horse really hard um, commercially and, 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 and have your your brand and, your, and stay marketable and, um, you know, keep those relationships going and, and, and nurture them hard. And, and they have taken, you know, effort. Uh, you're right, it's, it's been reasonably seamless because, again, I just, I've been very, very lucky to, to have very good loyalty on that side um, and that's something which I really um, am humbled by but yeah it's um, you got to work at it and you got to give value you have mm. to give value that's important you can't just you know sign these long-term deals and 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 not make some reasonable demands or work out how we can do things better or you know still question in a way that you know you're clearly a very 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 small cog in in a big wheel in these in these in them executing their supreme products but you have to you have to give tremendous value and um and of course it's also going to be authentic and for me it's very lucky that I the brands that I do represent I find I like them and I like what they represent so um mm. you know uh, and that's makes it easy as well um I'm not pushing things which are you know, I don't, I'm not fully in agreement with, which makes it, you know, very unconvincing. 
when, when you retired or even even now do you ever look back at and and miss the racing sense of purpose that you had i often explain it like for me sometimes i just miss that where i know what the year is about and i know what i'm out to try and achieve you know and it's whether that's the emotional mental or physical state of preparing for something you know winning certain races winning the world title whatever it is do you miss that or have you been able to sort of you know or or is that sort of you're content and you've done that and you've moved on um i think that i yes i do miss it uh i was in it you could you could argue you know some people think it's an individual sport uh, when we're in the car of course it is we've got a lot on our plate um, but uh, you know we have big teams in the background preparing everything for us and and extraordinary machinery and technology for us to even help develop and then and and go out and, and try and have the upper hand on the opposition and, and get the results uh that we're all striving for and that is extraordinarily rewarding you know it is it is it is something which you know that sort of the family spirit, if you like, inside inside the teams when you get that when you get that hunger and drive and 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 we're on a we're on, on a mission. Um, it's it's really a very 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 unique feeling um, to drive a racing car on the limit, which has had thousands and thousands and thousands of, of, of hours, meticulous hours in preparation and design, and you're the one that's got to go out there and and drive it on the limit and and try to, as I say, beat beat everyone else, uh, which doesn't always happen like that, but you it's hard to replace that. I mean, it's, it's natural. I am at one knowing that that was a, that was the first part of my life. I absolutely know sitting here, you know, 43 years of age, you put me in a formula one car. Now I would, I would, because I know mentally what should be possible, but I, I, I cannot do that anymore. So it's, 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 it's good to know that, that, you know, my, I am definitely out of date, which is fine. I my, the sticker is well and truly worn out on my, on, on the back of my, you know, the, the care, the care label is like, he's, he's finished. You know, can't use him anymore. Um, because that's it. It's a young man's game. Um, and once you've accepted that, you, you then, yes, you do have little, um, you know, I suppose this sort of purpose, as you say, mate, the, the sort of, uh, what are the positives from, from that? And the positives are that, you know, of course I did, you know, met some amazing people. I, I, I felt it's made me a better person. And you've got to look at all those, you know, positives. You cannot race in Formula One until you're 60 or 70. Naturally, it is front end loaded in your life cycle. You know, for that type of sport, you are going to be, you're going to do it at the front. And I often make the analogy myself as like I've got buddies. For example, like Pat Rafter, who was one of the best tennis players in the world. He was number one in the world. He won the US Open. You know, he, he, was, he was an extraordinary player. He retired at 30, you know. So I retired at nearly 40. So it's all relative. And, and, and I always try to draw the analogies to myself of, of people that, that have this career in a very narrow corridor of excellence um, because by the nature of commitment to it, you know, I started at 12 in carts and then I don't, didn't really have any other sense of employment. Um, and I turned professional and, and that's what I did. Um, so you come out the other end and, um, yeah, you've got to reason with that part and then now step into other ways of, of, of challenging yourself and doing new things. Yeah, that, you covered a lot in that, and I agree with everything you just said. It's like Laura and I like to say, my wife Laura, uh, who is also a professional triathlete, for people that don't know, we both often say that when we retired, we often step back and go, "No, we had our turn. It was like we've had our our moment." And the difference, you know, the big difference with our 
careers as professional athletes is there is always a time clock. There is, it's not like if I'm working within a certain industry and I'm building and building and building and, you know, I'm now 48 that I'm now starting to get to one of the, you know, the C-suite positions. It's, it's no, <laughs> every athlete in the world knows there's an end date. And I can't believe Pat after 30, isn't it amazing when you look back yeah. when we were going through sport, you know, in the nineties and early noughties and the, the 30 was a reasonably decent career age to retire at. And then I think there's been a group of us sort of sort of yourself included that sort of pushed that envelope. You know, I think I retired at 44. I look at athletes like Kelly Slater, um, Tom Brady for the American listeners, you know, quarterback mm -hmm. for New England. He's just signed with Tampa Bay. I mean, yeah. you know, he's into his 40s. This is becoming, we really have shifted the bar a little bit. And, I, and that's an interesting topic just in its own that, how have we been able to do that? Obviously, there's been the financial resources to, to back us, but then the physical, mental, and emotional learnings that we've all had over the last 20, 30 years to be able to go beyond where age had us retiring before. You know, I, I yep. look at uh, Jan Fudino in the sport of triathlon, Ironman. You know, he'll be, I think he's 39 this year and, and still wanting to push when he gets the chance. But, but yeah. it's becoming far more normal to push up into that. 40 or early 40s age it really is quite quite incredible and yeah you know i think also roger sorry to interrupt that you're totally wrong i think roger and rafa you look at mm. what's going on there as well uh, which is extraordinary and i think that you know in a sport like that where they see they have exposure to each other so often um that it's it's another game of chess right and and, and roger has had to um through science whether it's through you know all the all the computer generated sort of algorithms that he can look at in terms of stripping down his opposition because they've also got the same type of you know software that they can try and beat Roger with which is clearly very challenging but he's had to you know you cannot be a one trick pony in world sport you, if you want to have a long career obviously you need to have, you know which is the same in life and business whatever you know a brand whatever you you have to adapt you know and, and adaptability and then whether it's learning whether it's you know, you've got to have as many strings in your bow as possible because that variation, I think, of, of being able to perform on different days or different weather or, you know, whatever it is, you know, if, if it's surface, for example, for Roger, which is, you know, he, you know he's trying to perform, he performs on all surfaces. For us, it's, it's wet, it's wet conditions, it's different tracks, it's whatever. For you, it's time trial, it's climbing, it's running, it's, you know, swimming, choppy water. So every different sportsman um, has exposure in their career to, to have the ability to to keep the stay narrow and if you're narrow i think you you really there's, there's a huge chance that you're loading the dice towards a shorter career you have to of course clearly you know try and listen and adapt um and come back clearly from injury and adversity because that's you know that that comes with the territory so um yep it's uh it's, it's fascinating Mate, longevity is a great is a, is a great thing to um is a great thing to watch actually as you say it's, it's good stuff now I love that. I love that you're referring to to Federer and Nadal. I mean, for me, I have these debates with people often, and we, you know, this whole who's the who's the greatest athlete in the world, and who's the greatest of all time, and these kind of conversations. Which there's never a right or wrong answer, to be honest. For people listening, there isn't actually. None of us exactly know what the answer is, but I often love to throw in the the Roger Federer and, and Nadal and Djokovic as the three of the you know greatest athletes that we have on the planet um mainly because i've just started taking up tennis this last couple of years and uh, oh, mate. so 
<laughs> so the challenge is on, mate, when, when we do how meet high, up. How high, the, how high is the fence? <laughs> but I, uh, but, no, but you, you'd be bloody awesome at it. You'd be another pain in the arse. You'd be bloody good at that as well. Uh, you know what? I've just really enjoyed playing a game. I think, you know, I love the sport that I've done for 30 years. Triathlon's just been so good to me, and I, I still enjoy a swim, bike, and run. But it's not a game. It, it's kind of tennis has is, is been really enjoyable just to go out and hit a ball for an hour and um, – you know, I, I, I think it's, it's made me admire tennis players far more. I always did, but I think I've kind of stepped away going, you know, now I just watch videos trying to figure out how to, I'm a visual <laughs> learner. So, you know, I, I, you can't tell me how to do something. I have to watch it be done by the best. So I'm obviously I watching. I like pictures too, mate. I like pictures too. <laughs> exactly, <Yeah>. mate. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's kind of how I've been, been watching. And, um, you know, these guys, and, and I love what you said about, adaptability of what it takes, you know, in being a champion. And that you're the first guest I've had on here that's th- said that. And that's such a profound way of looking at it if you want a long career, that ability to, to adapt and go with the way the sport is going. And I mean, there's new young blood coming in. You've got to be ready and trying to stay in front of the curve. Um, I love that. When you, you mentioned injury and and overcoming all of those kinds of things and i want to touch on that just briefly with you and when i retired i put out a little you know facebook note saying i'm retiring kind of thing and i didn't really want to do it but a a friend of mine said no greg you really should put out a note so i did and i put out this i remember that (laughs) yeah i put out this note and and i i was like you know what i'm kind of retiring because my body's had enough and i'm tired of doing all the little things and and my passion's starting to you know waver a little bit and and my body's been through a lot. So I started counting my crashes, my bike crashes. And I was up to 33 or so by the time I, I stopped and three of those with cars and, and, and enormous crashes. And when I was doing a little bit of homework, you know, to ch- before chatting with you, I was thinking, well, geez, you've had your fair, fair share. Did, have you ever kind of, but, but, but what's interesting before you answer, what's interesting is your worst crashes seem to have not been in cars. They've been on the mountain bike. So when we we add them all in, have you kind of looked back and figured out how many kind of what you would describe as shunts in the motorsport world? Um, How many? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I, I rarely uh, scratch cars. I didn't scratch them off and I destroyed them. So um, (laughs) when I did it, I did it properly. So uh, probably definitely three or four, huge huge crashes in different times of my career and whether it was one you know a couple in 99 in france in a sports car and that was probably the most frightening and then i had one in 2010 in a formula one car and then another one in 14 in a sports car actually so they were the ones that really knocked the wind out of me um probably a bit of confidence because some were you know technical issues with the car like particularly uh you know the ones in 99 were you know, no real fault of your own. Um, and that's something that's really important for racing drivers to understand is how the incident did happen. Was it a, an error of judgment? Was it something that you're, you know, you've been a bit too flamboyant and, and blasé with certain conditions and you're, and, you're, and you're backing yourself too hard because clearly we need a lot of self-confidence to take risk. Um, but you you need to be measured with that. Um, so, yeah, understanding the, the reason why that incident took place um, and for all four of those ginormous crashes, I know I know the reasons why they took place. So then you can obviously, you know, move forward from that. Um, but the mountain bike crash that I had, the one you referred to, um, 
in Tasmania was quite nasty just because I had a pretty, pretty, you know, an open tib fib uh, fracture of the lower right leg, which was which was challenging to come back from in the time frame that I had, which I still did. Um, and again, the boss of Red Bull, Dietrich Mateschitz, was just extraordinary um, in the patience that he, he, he showed with me because I hadn't really had I hadn't had any big results for Red Bull at that point, and he didn't need to be that patient with me but he rang me in the hospital in Tasmania and he just said I want to see the x-rays and I said that's cool and he saw them he's like okay this is what my Austrian friends say this is the time frame I said I'll be back and he said well we'll wait for you and so you know yeah it's again it's always about the people around you but also you've got to drive them as well like I was as you would have been mate you know you've got to be you know when you get some really big headwinds whether they're you know, crashes or, or something that's unforeseen because you crashed your bike in a race because you thought whether it was, you know, whether it was something completely out of your control or there was a position that you could have learned from changing your, you know, whether you, you know, someone else took you out or whether you were, you just were taking too much risk in wet, wet conditions or, or whatever. Was it preparation or whatever? So you, but you have to bounce back from that. This is, this is the, this is the type road we're on. You know, we are by nature, we are not overly, you know, conservative individuals. We we are pretty self confident. We like to back ourselves, and we do take um, calculated risks. Clearly, we're highly skillful, highly trained. All those type of things, you know, go into the equation. But at times, um, you know, we're not robots either. You know, we are human. We will misjudge things, and so I think that as long as you understood uh, how and why it happened, particularly for that's how I used to look at it as well. And I know I spoke to some other drivers um, at a pretty high level, and it's just good to get an understanding of. Why and how? Of course, it hurts. You know, concrete walls and 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 the big, you know, the big when the when the hits happen, it's it, it really does just take your breath away, or you might not even remember it. You know, for example, like the last one, I was I woke up in hospital in Sao Paulo. So um, those ones get your attention, and then it can be a bit hard on the family and the other dynamics and whatnot. But um, we're pretty stubborn as well. Um, I know you're not stubborn at all. You're a very relaxed character, mate. And um, yeah, so uh, I, I know that you're a, you're a pretty stubborn character too. And that's what it takes. You're selfish. You're driven. You're hungry. And and the knocks are part of the part of the profession. You know, you have to have those. Um, well, sorry, you will have those. And that's just that's part of the test. You, you mentioned your crashes, and for those listening that, that don't know or, or haven't watched motorsport, <laughs> type in uh, 99 Le Mans crash with Mark Webber, and then the other one was the, the big other one, uh, spectacular crashes that anyway for, for TV viewing was the 2010 Valencia Formula One crash. Um, yep. In both of those, you fly through the air for several hundred meters, in, uh, and, and I know Valencia, you get out of the car and you walk away. I mean, I think you told me you had a sprained ankle. Is that what you did in Valencia, or, or was that the? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Ankle, right foot was, um, <laughs> but not much. Like it was pretty, it was pretty average. Um, but went to the medical centre and and they said, "Oh, you're in a bit of shock." I said, "I'm not in shock. You know, it's all fine." But then, yeah, of course you are. So, you know, that um, I had a bit of concu- concussion as well. But in general. The cars again, you know. That's again, I'm banging on about it, but ultimately, there's trust. There's, there's, you know, I saw chief designer and, and some of the key key guys in 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 that in the design of that car, of course, after that, and they were all you know, very, very, very thankful because, you know, I have had also very, very tight mates um, that have designed cars where, you know, tragically they have they have lost drivers, and um, that's 
you know, that they, they, they obviously, you know, that is extremely difficult for them to take for, for, for a long period of time and, and the rest of their life. But they, they know the drivers are happy to take the risk. So it's just, you know, sometimes that the luck is not on, on someone's side when it comes to that. But it, thankfully for me that, you know, I, I did, I did um, come out of it right and, and you do have a bit of a, a big moment when you see those guys you sort of, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty special to thank them in a way that, you know, they made the right design calculation. Uh, I, I, I seriously, when I, I remember, I think we, we met, I don't know, in Noosa, whenever it was, uh, we met up for a coffee, we, you know, we became mates pretty quick and, and I think, you know, watching some of those things, I just, your family, you mentioned that have to watch some of those things and, you know, you're, you're driving at 300 K an hour plus, um, and then taking off through the air. It's, you know, your wife, Anne and your, your sister and your mom, and I know obviously your dad and things as well, but, and even for the rest of us, your mates, <laughs> it was, it's really not fun to watch. And, uh, yeah. I was like, I don't know if I could be friends with this guy. I really don't enjoy, you know, I mean, you enjoy the victories and the celebrations when you're winning Monaco and you're w- winning Silverstone Grand Prix and some of the biggest Grand Prix in the world. And you have these incredible highs and then these unbelievably dramatic lows, you know, I mean, we all have lows in life. There's some, but in, in a formula one or a race car driver, it's, your lows are just so in your face dramatic, you know, it's like, bang, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's like, wow. And, and those moments of, going through the air i know with crashes that i've had my most recent um when i hit a car in 2009 and i would just done this amazing bike ride around the rocky mountains and 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 it was like a 90k ride with 6,000 feet of climbing and and it was one of those time splits where i was like coming home to tell laura and brag to her amazing how amazing i was you know? <laughs> and i was only about a kilometer from home and this car you know suddenly turned in front of me and i hit the hood of it the bonnet and went flying over and I remember I was probably going about 45K an hour, so nothing in terms of what you guys do. But I remember being upside down in the air and it was almost like I can still visually see those images in my head now if I look back. And it was almost like a slow motion effect of, ooh, this is going to hurt. I had, I had time enough to go, this is not going to be good and sort of landed on my, my back shoulder, blah, blah, blah. And I think I was knocked out for a little while. I remember waking up. And I couldn't see, I couldn't see out of my eyes. I'm like, what's, what's going on? And I kept blinking, blinking. I'm like, crap, I'm blind. And there's this real panic that, you know, now I'm blind. And I hear everybody yelling around me because I'd crashed right in front of the local bike shop, uh, not bike shop, coffee shop in Boulder, Colorado, the um, Amante. And, all, and it was a Saturday morning and all the cyclists had run across to, you know, yell at this driver. And I just heard all this yelling and I'm like, shit, I'm blind. And I'm, what's going on? And then all of a sudden I started blinking and, and all it was, was my face. My eyes were all full of blood. And once I could actually see, see, I was fine. But when you went through your crashes, was it that same kind of experience where you were kind of like life yeah, stood still, slow-mo? Yeah. 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 Extraordinary. I mean, how the, yeah, fight or flight, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing how, I mean, pretty calm, absolutely yeah you're like okay this is clearly we're in a tricky situation now and and you do have time to just slice it down the brain just goes into that very very weird wiring process of of sort of uh trying to help you through it and uh and then obviously the realization of the the sort of violence of it when when we're starting to come unstuck obviously and that's the same view obviously when you're sliding down the road and that still is reasonably slow motion but um yeah i think it's it is 
it's part of it um, that mm. somehow that the, the the brain does elect to, to operate like that. And I'm sure there's a lot of specialists out there, lots of other meeting and let me know or let us know <laughs> why and how that happens. But um, yeah. it's for a reason. And um, yeah, but uh, and I don't, I'm not disappointed with actually, you know, I'm pretty happy with how, how we're being wired up in those traumatic situations because it actually, you know, I don't know if there's too many other better ways we can deal with it because actually all the ones that I had where I thought, well, a couple where I thought I might not make it, I was actually reasonably calm. I was not, I wasn't overly stressed. I mean, I was, you know, I didn't, I wasn't wishing for pain. Don't get me wrong. I was wishing if it's going to happen, turn the lights off quick, but I wasn't sort of hoping, you know, it's going to be too much of a, too much of a drama. So yeah, it was, mm. yep. Well, well enough, enough enough on the on the crashes and the low points of your career. I want to touch on a couple of your, your big moments. And first and foremost, you were on the Formula One circuit for, for many, many years and you were learning your trade and you were with some, you know, you got your start in 2002, correct me if I'm wrong with some of this, but it was, yeah, that's right, yeah. it was many, many years. And then finally, tell me about that first win in the German Grand Prix because it was a hundred plus starts you'd had in Formula One. And then mm. finally that breakthrough win. What was it? Did you start to get to a point where like, maybe I'm never going to get my chance to win or you were just the perseverance to hang in there, the mindset that you had. And then finally, was it relief? Was it joy? Was it every a bit of all of those things? What was it like? Yeah, absolutely. Mate. Yeah. A lot, a lot of it, mainly relief. I mean, it was a uh, quite a long, you know, I, I felt I was ready to win quite a few years before that, but uh, in the end, didn't deliver and 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 make it happen when it counted. Whether it was, you know, of course, with some of the machinery, but also myself. And I think that um, you know that real test that I that I had to sort of keep hanging in there. I was I was close to well, not retiring before that, but I was really, yeah, like you say, questioning, you know, how how long have I got to stay at this for to get mm. the ultimate result because. And ultimately, that's what it's all about, right? And I think that um, I remember it quite well that week. I was I went to Ireland with my family, um, and even my my parents were, were were in Europe at that time, and went over there. And um, it was booked a long way in advance, and had a few, let's say, family members, and and they wanted a few Guinnesses and bits and bobs. And I saw an, an Irish, we're an Irish bar, which as you do, of course, in Dublin, and. Um, had a had a pint of Guinness and, and this guy said to me from Ireland, he said, mate, you're going to, with the big F1 fans obviously in Ireland, he said, you're going to win the next race. I'm like, oh, mate, yeah, God, we'll have had plenty in front, mate. So if you, yeah, if you're uh, if you're on the money, I'll take it for sure. But so, and and from, that was like on a Monday, Tuesday or whatever, and I was getting bored on this holiday, family holiday, so I left and um, I wanted to go back and get train, get training and, and, and get my eye on the prize. And it turns out, obviously, yeah, the next weekend it did happen. So we do laugh about that point again with the with the Irish guys and 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 just relief, mate. I think that you know in the nineties, a hundred Grand Prix around that that was a norm for for a driver to sort of to get yourself established and and have the credibility and and, and find yourself in the right machinery and be trusted with with operating in the high level teams around hundred Grand Prix was a Mika Hacken and double world champion. He was north of a hundred Grand Prix. There was quite a few that wasn't. At, at, you know, sort of abnormal, but you know, at my phase in my career, it was it was there was quite a few um, that did it before then, and um, yeah, well, of course, there was a huge amount that never did it at all. We know that didn't win a single race, but you know, for for, for me, um, you know, I was it was 
a journey and then it was once it was the first one it, I mean it was just relief because I think it was 21 years that a, a previous Australian had won you know, Alan Jones a long time before then there was only three Australians that won a race in about 60 years now Daniel's joined us which is great sensational so yeah it's it's it was pretty slim pickings and um it was just a ginormous day and it was great that actually dad was dad was there too and 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 um and Annie and it was a, it was a cracking day that's awesome buddy I I always, I, I felt like, you know, when I look back at my own career, it was, and I've said that on this show before, if I could go back to my 17 year old self, I'd say number one thing, it'd be one word, it'd be just confidence. And I, I think I lacked a little bit of that. I think my insecurities and everything fueled me to want to be better, but I think I lacked that winning confidence that a lot of my competitors had. Um, and yeah. I think that affected me physically and mentally and emotionally. It, it affected everything. And and it really took until I was in my 30s until I started, I changed my winning rate from that 8 to 10% to being closer to one in two races there for about a, a seven-year block. And and a lot of that was just this confidence. Yes, I grew physically, and but I think fueling that physicality came that that emotional confidence that I just kept working on the visualizing and all the bits that finally got me to believe in myself. And, it, and you become almost... I think getting that first major victory out of the way, it's like, okay, now I can go out and play. Now I can really go and do it. And that's what you went and did. When I look at you, yeah. you know, from, from that first win, it's just like, bang. I mean, yes, yeah, you, we you, yeah. you were with an amazing team. Red Bull were putting together sensation cars and, and you had an incredible engineers and mechanics behind you. But you were the one, you are still as the driver in Formula One, you are still the guy that's giving all, relaying all the information back. You're, you're building the cars and things with these guys. So you, you, you have to have the confidence to be running a team of several hundred people, right? I mean, and then so you've gone on to win, you know, eight more Grand Prix in a pretty short space of time after that first win and, you know, got on the podium. God, was it 40 or 50 times? Like it was really the, the Mark Webber era there and your, your teammate Sebastian Vettel and a few others that you had, it was really that window there once you started winning. Um, you just owned it. Do you, do you feel like that? Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's a big milestone, particularly if it's not a fluke, like your first big, you know, whether it's a you know, your first ginormous milestone like that. Um, I think it's good that it's not a fluke done through random attrition or in our, in our, obviously it's more difficult in your sport, mate, lots of other sports generally, if you win, you win. But in our sport, sometimes you could be handed a different set of scenarios that might make the win a little bit more shallow because of mechanical failures or uh, normal guys, you know, some other guys made some errors or whatnot. But on that one, I was so happy that thank God when it did come, it still was, it was still my race pretty much for the whole day and and that was that was great so i did sort of i led the most laps i was from pole position and i sort of just got the fast lap and i controlled it so that was really really um sensational and and, and it is a it is a bit you just feel lighter you're like okay wow this is this <laughs> is the middle step this what mm. this middle step feels like why well, I, I am now um no i've done it and and now it should be a little bit more easy going forward yeah should be <laughs> exactly should be yeah <laughs> Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. What I love about your resume in the, in the Grand Prix world that 
even if you don't follow Formula One, you're not a diehard Formula One fan, you say the word Monaco, Monte Carlo, that's you, you owned that race, you know, you've won it twice, um, you've pole position, all of that. Then if you were to say, is there a secondary race in Formula One that people might know, it's Silverstone in the UK where basically you kind of feel like motorsport kind of blossomed you know, over the last hundred years. And you've won that one a couple of times. So, you know, you're winning what the races that you won. Do you look back and go, yeah, I, I nailed the big ones? Well, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, um, you know, you don't, <laughs> it's interesting. You don't really get a, a choice, obviously, when you're, uh, well, I'm going to pick this one. I'll pick that <laughs> one. Of course, it's, it's nice. Um, and your question's totally fair, mate. It just, it just turned out that way that those, those pieces of Asphalt in the world uh, that I particularly had a bit of a, a love affair with just happened to have to be, they were called big races um, because, you know, it's not, you know, when you put the helmet on and start competing, it's, okay, is it the occasion a bit? You know, what is it that really, you know, got me, got me very comfortable and at ease at those places because generally, um, you know, as you say, I, I did have good runs at those circuits and, and a lot of it's, it's, it's the it's the technical side too. I mean, there's a lot of tracks which which I didn't dislike driving at, um, but I couldn't quite crack what what was needed with sometimes with the material there, and 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 that's what separates the really 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 good guys to to the greats. Obviously, the greats can probably you know extract a bit more out of the subpar circuits, and 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 the tracks where of course you're you're naturally really comfortable on, like Brazil is another one for me where. Mm. I say to the guys, if you just give me this and that, I'll look after the rest. And and that's why some of those tracks where I won it, you know, a few times, um, it just worked. And some other tracks, it's like, well, if you just give me that and that, and you're still that one tenth short, and that one tenth short is is obviously a big chunk. So, um, yeah, it's it's, and then you've got to really work hard, of course, super hard. The other tracks, which which become a little bit more demanding for you. So, you know, as a golfer, you can't say, "Well, I just love playing par threes. I'll just play par threes. I don't like par fives. Well, <laughs> mate, you, you're gonna have you, you're gonna have a pretty short career. So, yeah. you've got to really work at at those at those sort of ones that don't probably come as natural to you. And and it's funny, and you know, Jensen Button well through his you know triathlon. Um, days which he, he really did a good job and, and you know that was a, a, a nice escapism from him from racing doing his triathlon racing and he we, we always joked because he uh, he did so well in Australia at, at the Albert Park event and I never got on the podium there or a genuine podium mm. um, and the same for JB in Silverstone he's like mate how do you do it here and I said well mate if you can do it in Australia and I can you know, can we just swap can we just bloody swap mate he was furious because he was he never did anything at Silverstone, and I didn't really do a great deal in, in Australia either. So it was just the it was just the way it was, which was we couldn't hand you couldn't give it a few credits to each other, unfortunately. Yeah, it's just the way sport is, isn't it? It's uh, I mean triathlon and, and the world we grew up in is much the same. You know, they they position a world championship, and it could be freezing cold, or it could be mega hot, or it could be hilly or flat or whatever it is, and you just got to that's the hand that you're given. And, um, and, and like yeah. that in my career, it really does. I mean, yeah. I look it's back and that. I go, New York triathlon was just fantastic. Um, and I, I, I love that. And I could bang in and bang in back. It was just a surface and the hills and the swing. Everything about it was 
my talents. And uh, it was, you know, I have to add a little side bit. Monaco was a special place for me in my career because it was actually my first ever World Cup. And you, like with your, your German Grand Prix and your first major win after 100 plus starts, well, I'd been racing the World Cup circuit for quite a while in triathlon. And I remember at the start of the year saying to a good mate of mine, Trent Chapman, a local Australian mate and a good training buddy of mine, and we we're down at the Institute of Sport in Canberra in Australia. And we we're sitting there and they had this massive big screen TV in the dining hall at the AIS. And, and Chapo says to me, look, if, if one of us ever gets to win a world cup, we have to buy a big screen TV. You know, it was because it felt so, it felt so remote that it would ever happen. Like it was just more like a dream more than something yep. that you were planning for. Yep. I'll never forget Monaco for us. So we, we swam in the harbor there and it was a wild swim, but then we did the mm-hmm. full bike was laps of the exact course that you guys drove. Mm. So we did laps after laps after lap. I can't remember how many laps it was, but you can tell me how many K's it is around, I guess, but um, it was pissing down rain. And yeah. anyway, I got out of the swim and just suddenly went for it up, up the hill what's the hill there called that you guys drive basically when you start you just go straight up oh you go up to the casino yeah yeah straight up the casino and i just went for it and suddenly i had a little gap right from the swim and this is draft legal had just come into the sport before that it was all sort of non-drafting um and this was the second or third year of draft legal and no one had ever been able to break away on the bike and i was like ah i've just done a suicide mission what am i doing and anyway i kept going and when I got to the casino about two thirds of the way through there, I saw Trent Chapman sitting on the side of the road. I'm like, what happened, mate? Yelled out to him. He's like, just go, go. Anyway, he'd had a puncture, but then each lap, he just kept yelling out big screen TV. <laughs> and, <laughs> and anyway, I managed to, we, the, the run was just laps around the La Piscine down the bottom there. So it was a fairly flat run, you know, down and around and around. Yep. And yep. I managed to hold on for the win. But that was like, for me, Monaco, because of its history with you guys in Formula One motor racing and the sport, and it meant so much to me even on top of that in the world of triathlons. You know what I mean? It still gives me goosebumps to think about it, and and it was like such a special moment that it was like finally – I mean, look, I was 25. I wasn't over the hill, but it was sort of, okay, maybe I – maybe I can play. Maybe I am a part of this, and, you know, and then the victory started to – well, they came and went, you know, but it was uh, a few of them, a few of them happened. But I want to move back a little bit and just sort of wind the clock back and just tell me a little bit about how you got into finding your passion for motor racing and when you sort of found out that you might have some ability and, and some talents. Hmm. Yeah, well, my, my father had a motorbike shop in Queanbeyan, um, New South Wales, in the sort of east uh, east side of Australia there. We were exactly an hour and a half from the snow, an hour and a half from the ocean, um, which in terms of um, why that's important is just because recreationally um, I love my sports. Uh, so I was trying to have a go at everything. Mum, both my parents were, were, were big on that. I think they knew that I wasn't um, certainly not uh, – when it come to the um, sort of curriculum side of things, it wasn't exactly going to be my signature punch, and um, so the attention span was a bit of a challenge. So um, the snow, we couldn't really afford to go up there too much at all. Uh, so I was down the beach and doing bit, bits and bobs. So I really enjoyed sports, but the motorbike shop was still something that I, I often, you know, thought about. Apart from having you know pretty awesome 
you know, looking women uh, posters on my wall. I had a lot of motor, <laughs> motorbikes, motorbikes, and and car racing as well as a young lad. So my heroes were were the sort of motorsport gladiators, if you like, and um, that's where it started. And and you know, motorbikes was was a great. A really a good thing because I think it taught me, you know, along again with dad, you know, the guidance of him, just that sort of the consequences and responsibility and all those things from a young age that like you, you well, look, mate, this is over to you now, mate. You're on this thing. You've got to manage it. You've got to, you know, you've got judgment. You've got to concentrate. You've got all these things that, you know, go into your little bubble. And I remember just commentating, you know, lap after lap after lap in my head about how I'd win all these races and how amazing I was on this motorbike, just racing myself around the paddock and doing things and and just completely delusional. But I, I think clearly had a had a bit of a vision and had something that, you know, I was I was so hungry about. Um, and then I went, didn't race bikes because Dad didn't let me re- compete. He just let me recreational, recreationally use them. Um, but then go-karts was the next the next sort of step and, and and people might think, well, hang on, where's all, you know, the finances of it and and, and, and that is, is a challenge. Our sport is, isn't is cheap um, and I was very, very lucky to just jam, you know, or jag some really good sponsors, Yellow Pages and, and some good, you know, David Campisa, the rugby union player, helped me in 97 because um, the Australian currency was horrendous. So I left Australia um, in 95 having, you know, started karting in 90 and um, so it went reasonably quickly, but I think that to answer your question, well, when did I feel I was sort of making some decent progress and this was going to be it? I think that when I started to win in Europe, you know, you can win in Australia and do okay here, but I think when you go over there in the hotbed of, you know, all the all the South Americans, all the Scandinavians and Europeans and, and you find yourself, you know, winning in the junior categories, um, the first categories after after go-karts, then you're like, okay, this is this could be quite a serious, Mark, and let's let's really apply myself now. That's awesome. And so you went over there when you were 18, 17, 18, right? And, yeah. yeah. And, and was that yeah. kind of like you were like, okay, I'm going to go all in. This is, if I'm going to make this, I have to do everything I can. Was it, was it a real switch? Like, boom, I'm going to Europe. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the old thing, man, you can relate to this, you know, what you, and it's all part of the journey because you, you feel you're doing everything. Um, it's all relative. You, you, you know, I, I thought I was invested. I thought I was doing everything and, and and I constantly think, and I talk to when I talk to other athletes or people pursuing their goals. Is it's really the, especially in sporting, in the sporting field, obviously it's the Monday to Friday that can really that 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 really makes the big difference in terms. Of, I think you know it's the application, the preparation, and the consistency. You need to be consistent, and I think that I thought I was doing everything. I was going along all right, um, still fluking a few results here and there, but I was far from finished. Of course, I was so far from the polish, you know, you know, the, the finished product, um, and that's part of again the sort of journey that each individual has to go on in terms of the, the, the pros and cons of, of your attitude towards different parts of your profession and how you're going to handle those and who do you listen to and, and are you a smart ass and have you got a bit of this and have you got a bit. So it's all that you need plenty of mongrel, of course. You need that desire and enthusiasm and passion, but I think that um, I had quite a lot of people doubting you know, what was how you know i'll be home pretty soon but you know come back with my tail between my legs and um and that was good motivation for me i use as a source of motivation that i'm not going to be coming back anytime soon and and i need to stay there and if i'm staying over there in europe that means i'm i'm making i'm making a little bit of an impact and that was that was good i just use that as motivation because um 
Yeah, that was important. I, I, and I didn't really have too many plan Bs, to be honest, mate, because I think plan Bs and too many opt-outs is, is a bit of a cop-out. You know, I think it's, you know, it's, it was really, really important just to this tightrope was pretty much one way um, and you just have to, we, we have no other option. We've got yeah. to, we've got to, we've got to make it work. I love that. I had um, uh, the 2019 triathlon world champion on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, Vincent Louis, and he talks about, look, when your back's against the wall, you can only go forward. And, and his story was much like yours. It was basically his dad, you know, was a working class man that worked in a factory and, and had a little bit of money for him to help with the university studies. And he kind of went to his dad and said, look, you know, uh, is there any chance I could have that money and just back myself in this triathlon business? And I think he was 17, 16, 17. And by 19, he won the world junior champs and, you know, signed with a French club and a couple of little sponsors and that kind of thing. And then finally, 11 years later, he won the world senior champs, but it was this, I don't have another choice. There's no other options here. And, and, and the, you also touched on the doubters, you know, motivating and fueling you. It's uh, when I spoke to Gwen Jorgensen, the, the 2016 uh, Olympic triathlon champion, uh, we were discussing that you can have the people that are behind you no matter what. They're, they're empowering. They love you. They, they think you're the greatest. And they can really help you and motivate you. But then you can also be truly motivated and, and really fueled by these people that say, nah, mate, you, you, you're not going to make this. Or Greg, biomechanically, mate, you haven't got it. Or Greg, your VO2 is not quite there. You just like suddenly you're like, wow, I was motivated before, but now I'm really motivated. So it's, yeah. it's funny what, what fuels athletes and what it takes to become, to become the greatest. And you mentioned all the things that, you know, you've had to learn over time. And I kind of want to just quickly touch on some of those things. And especially in motorsport, your relationships uh, with your family, with, with your, your team around you. Tell me about the people that have been a part of your life and, and, and their roles and how they've influenced, you know, your career. Well, wow. I mean, it's a pretty tight, it's pretty tight knit and it's not that, it's not that big. Um, but in terms of clearly both my parents, uh, extraordinary, um, you know, commitment from them and, um, you know, mum wasn't, you know, too excited about the whole uh, deal, but um, just from the danger perspective, but, you know, dad was extraordinary, still is to this day, both of them. And, um, you know, they were there, I spoke to them before pretty much every race and, um, they, you know, of course, if they're on the other side of the world or, or whatnot, they were they were always in my corner, which was which was phenomenal. Dad had great vision and, and trust in me to, to give it a go and, and that gave me, you know, a bit of a, well, him and a few other guys that definitely had the support in me, I think it gives you a lot of um, accountability and you have to deal with the pressure then that comes with that in a good way. You know, it's, it's actually, the, you know, you, you have to at some point, you know, deal with that accountability and responsibility that other people are. Um, they've invested some some time well as well. You know, it's not it's not really it's it's not a drill. You know, this is not a drill. You know, it's just a pretend sort of you know little little sort of professional we're trying to pull off here. Once you're then professional, yes, then it's over to you to work with the professionals and and you've got your wings and you can do your thing. Um, and then of course, obviously, Anne, you know, my wife, and she was extraordinary. We've been you know together for a long time, and um, we. You know, we, you know, I want to say single-handedly, of course, but, um, you know, kept it pretty lean and mean. But um, the, the, the journey we, we went on, particularly in the formative years, was, was pretty daunting. Um, we certainly knew the price of a bottle of milk um, and I was getting paid, you know, 43 pounds a day to, 
to work at the racing school when I first went over there and I was driving a 1.1 shitbox Ford Laser and, and that was it basically. So, um, you know, we went through a lot together and, and, it, and it's, you sort of see in essence the principles and, and the sort of goals that you have sort of together and, and that was really fun and rewarding but, of course, challenging. And so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, that's the sort of going and turning pro let's say you know whatever you know there's obviously a lot of columns in that and then when you get there you 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 naturally you know drop onto some other council sort of segments which is which is great you know whether it's like I say i talk about the sir jackie stewart's the the nicky louders you know all the guys that you know that i that were you know similar to my to my father's age but they were they were professionals in the field that i was you know applying myself and, and they could obviously give a different lens on on what's I needed to do and and that was that was also crucial so um yeah very very lucky to to have lots of well i mean the list would be long mate but there's just a couple there that mm. that spring to mind um and david campese like i said before the vision he showed in me um to to get the job done um paul stoddart as well um wow there's people that gone pre-corporation ron walker you know lots of people that that you know and the little chats in the ear from different people along the way and that's that's always the the, the, the interesting thing and you certainly get better i don't know about you maybe i think i certainly got better at listening of course the older you get when you're young it's 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 really a good it's it's something really really special i think if you can if you can listen well as the earlier in your life the better it's actually quite good i mean of course you can you can take a lot of you can take a lot on board and have baggage it's not a good thing if you've got a good filter and, and, and listen off people that can give you some tremendous advice and it goes in then i think that's that's a good quality to have. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that um, yeah, I was I was lucky, mate. Again, to have to have good people and, and obviously insane amount of loyalty. You know, the team's been lean and um, as still is to say, not an overcomplicated life. Um, we just uh, kept it pretty simple. Yeah, well, I mean, even your teams that you've worked with at Red Bull and Porsche and your racing career, and you mentioned them earlier when we were talking about your crashes and and how important your relationship with those guys were because they were building life-saving cars. I mean, not just cars yep. that could win, but, you know, something that could actually save your life. And and I've watched you and Annie for, you know, well, this past 10 years work together. And there, there's few couples in the world that I see work so well as a team that love each and love each other, have great loyalty and everything else. But then also work as this, this, this business about, you know, the business of being Mark Weber. And, and it's really the two of you, is what's created you and your brand. It's it's a, it's a very evident and strong team and partnership. And uh, you know, both Laura and I, you know, we've spent some time with you guys, whether it's in Colorado or whatever. And we often leave just going, "There's such a such a great team in what they're going about." And you both have your strengths. You know, you both have your, your areas, and there's certain things that you're not going to get involved in at all. I know it's ninety ten me. <laughs> And and, and it's much like my relationship with Laura, actually. I I often talk about that, that I'm often the one that's out there performing. But quite often what I'm either saying is just regurgitated from her. I just tend to be more the flashy, you know, hands in the air, passionate, waving everywhere sort of guy. And she's the more rational, you know, calm one that's actually got, you know, the the sense and sensibility. So there's a lot of similarities there, mate. So tell me a bit about your... um, your sleep and recovery while you were, I mean, obviously now you, like you said, 80 to 90 flights a year when you were a driver, especially in formula one, you know, with 20 to 22 races a year having to perform. Are there any 
tools or tactics uh, that you use to optimize sleep and recovery during? Yeah, I mean, again, got so much better as my career went on. Um, I think that, you know, jet lag is a huge component for us. Obviously, we, we're doing a, a huge amount of, you know, time changes and, and competing. So that's the first thing that comes to, to mind in terms of once the calendar's released, uh, straight away we are pretty much blocking, you know, 90% of, of, of our flights and hotels because mm. um, that's how structured it can be because we know that, guess what, the event's not going to be cancelled apart from this year when stuff is mm. Extreme, mm. completely extraordinary scenes, obviously, with this pandemic. But, you know, previously, you know, it is absolutely set in stone. Yes, do you want to arrive on Tuesday night, Mark, into Montreal because you're coming from here? Well, yes, I do. I've got a seven-hour time difference. So Tuesday night... You know, come Friday, I'll still have a little bit of residual jet lag, but then by come you know Saturday, Sunday, I'm going to be, you know, uh, pretty good. It's always a compromise, of course. Can you get there a bit earlier? Have we got, or, you know, have we got humidity in play? You know, Malaysia, for example. So every different region has its own little, little challenge. I mean, you know, when we're in Europe, only a time, an hour time difference. It's a, it's a lot more straightforward. But I think that. Um, you know, getting that button down pretty well, you know, your schedule is, is good because then you can start booking out your, you know, then you've got your PR days and you've got, of course, your training days and, and, and all your other things with the engagement with the team. So you're just trying to plan your season as best you can because then you know what's coming from, from, from week to week and there's no real surprises. And then it's even made down to really good intel on, you know, we'd have the team sweep the hotels in advance and once you lock onto the hotels you like and not in terms of, you know, the flashness of it. It's just like, do I want to be next to a lift? No, I don't want to be next to a lift. Do I want to be down right down the end of the corridor? Absolutely. Do I want to be that side away from the street? Of course. So, you know, the, the, the girls knew and they were awesome and that was the thing. Like we, we never trivialised every member of the team. They knew that they were part of the victory and we had it because it's, it is all those little things which, you know, which can make a difference. And, you know, I... I very proudly so I, I don't think i ever changed a hotel room in my life actually so i'm not super high maintenance at all i'm just like i want to get it right that you know if you are there and do the preparation and, and have a look at if you have a choice to to get the slightly better rooms in terms of location they might be even smaller but geez am i going to be, get a better sleep absolutely so focus on that i think um of course meal you know eating of course you guys know all about that eating eating as, as, as well as you can um and, you know, the recovery after the races was really challenging because often we would fly that night and you'd be pretty dehydrated and, you know, probably depending on your result, you might obviously have a few lemonades in terms of with a bit of a, with a bit of kick in them as well. Um, so that would be, wouldn't really help, wouldn't help the sort of recovery on a 13 or 14 hour flight direct that night back. So that's when the immune system could be quite quite challenged um so i remember competing a lot in malaysia and we get on the ko flight back to london straight away that night so you're really dry really dehydrated it's not just that two-hour event obviously you've had the whole weekend you've been a bit dry clearly you're on top of your hydration but so it's those things where our sport is i think and as you know man i'm a huge sports fan i watch a lot of sport but in terms of i think we are certainly in the top few in terms of the sort of logistically getting ourselves around in pretty short time frames, but also a pretty um, heavy workload when we do compete for those two hours. So, um, yeah, lots gone into it, lots changed. Um, and, yeah, so sleeping in cool rooms, keeping yourself, you know, obviously it's crucial, you know, that we need we need to sleep. Um, and naturally I didn't really want to go to sleep with um, – 
too full of bladder because for me just personally if i woke up during the night um you know and, and and had a pit stop then it was sometimes my mind would start spinning i'm getting ready for the race and so it was quite you know little things like that you just want to make sure you personal preferences it really is incredible i had uh, dr luke bennett on who's also made of yours made of ours um and we were chatting about you know the traveling circus of the formula one world and and for those people that haven't heard it's a really great great chat i have with luke on this show and and he goes into a lot of detail as well exactly like you've just described in the the planning and preparation for this traveling circus and the the time zones and the jet lag and everything else that you guys are dealing with and and trying to figure out the best times for recovery and um and i think what what's fascinating is how you guys can stay try and stay healthy all year with your immunity um, and looking after your gut health and, and not picking up any bugs or anything else. Did you travel with your own chef and did are you doing a lot of blood work throughout the year and, and sort of checking yourself? Um, yeah, I did a bit of pathology at the end of my career again, just because you know I was trying to extend it and, and understand you know how again the recovery. Um, could be improved and also then getting my training going again in between events. So that was something which, you know, from, you know, around 2010 actually, so probably, you know, the last three or four years really tried to do a slightly better job on that or definitely a lot better job on that. Um, no chef. I mean, we the teams had their chefs, but, I mean, they knew what we liked. I didn't, it wasn't personally on me, but obviously, of course, the teams, you know, it goes without saying, obviously, if we have a ropey meal or food poisoning, it's going to be a pretty chip, tricky afternoon. So we want to make sure the food is in really, really good good shape. Um, just a little boring personal stat that I'm pretty proud of. Probably did, I probably drove a Formula One car about 1,000 days in my career. If you think about racing days, Sundays, and you've got Saturdays and Fridays, and you've got testing, and give or take a 1,000 plus, plus or minus 100 or whatever. And, and I think I I missed three days of work. So, um, yeah, um, it's... It's did did I drive sometimes a bit rough? Of course I did, you know. Um, but that's you know I've got a I've got a job, I've got a job to do, um, and the team expect that. And I want to show that you know in a way, if you can, sometimes lead by example and show that the mechanics will. Yeah, they've everyone in our team at some point will have a, a tricky day where it might not be easy to to perform at your best, or you might be feeling a bit run down through like the things we just mentioned in terms of travel or whatnot, because it gets to everyone. But you've got to you got to suck it up and, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and hope to, the next day will be a bit better in terms of your, in terms of your energy levels. Well, what's fascinating also about you is, um, and, and, and again, Dr. Luke Bennett and I were, were chatting with, about you on, on that episode with him and you were one of the taller guys and the weight was a big, dif- a, a big deal for when you were racing. And I believe there's been some changes since you retired in terms of weight. Mate, um, they've made it so easy now. Like these guys, they don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you, you had to watch your but, weight though, right? I mean, you were like course. a coxswain in rowing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I was a geriatric um, back then. No, I think, of course, mate, we were doing our skin folds a lot. Um, I tried to, because every kilo or half a kilo that it wasn't on me, I could put that ballast on the floor of the car, which is performance. So, um, Yes, the driver and car weigh the same, but it's where you can put the ballast, and and it's a nightmare for for me to be well. I effectively was on average about eight kilos heavier than 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 other drivers, being seventy four kilos myself. But of course, the other guys were, you know, to say sixty six or sixty seven, or even I think some of the guys like Felipe Massa or Heidfeld were sort of low sixties. So that's certainly not an advantage to me. So I tried to do what I could. Of course, I was definitely 
mm. one of the tallest, if not the tallest. And um, but that's the way it was. You know, that's the car dolls dealt, and um, you know, cracked on. I, I I had to I had to deal with that, and and you know, it's um, we don't need chapter and verse on that, but it, clearly it was a it was a fact, yeah. Mm. And that did that drive you into? I mean, let's have a quick look into the physical training you guys were doing. And it was funny. I think after you retired from motor racing, you know, I'd always been a fan of what you were doing and everything else. But it wasn't until I I went out to this proper um, go kart track out west of uh, Boulder, Colorado. So out in the desert there, and it was a proper like you know race course for for karting. And so we rented these carts, and and I think they were pretty probably shit boxes, but we we had a turn on them and i think i think the the thing was like a half hour or 10 laps or whatever it was it wasn't long and i remember thinking well that's not very long and i wanted to get out of the thing after about two laps or about five minutes yeah. i was i was absolutely smashed not just yeah. the just the physical movement in the just being rattled and just i was like oh and i think i texted you as soon as i got out of the car the cart and just said mate i don't think i respected what you did nearly <laughs> enough uh, and i've only done you know half an hour in this thing and my i'm sore like my back and my arms and everything about me was so sore and and so the physical preparation you guys have to not just endure the one to two hours of racing and, and then the weekends but also to be able to take the hits and the physical side to side movement and all the g-forces you know tell me about the training that you guys would do to prepare for that yeah um absolutely mate i think the the, the g-forces it's fitness is linked or well, the condition we needed to be in um, is definitely linked to, to G-forces. So the, the lighter the car, the more powerful the car, the more downforce the car has, um, that is is proportionally just loaded on onto the driver, whether it's your neck, <coughs> excuse me, whether it's your, your, your lower back, whether it's your lats, shoulders, um, you know, all those, you know, uh, and glutes and um, everything, quads because you've got to brake hard, you know. So it is a pretty big overall war- workout and I think that, you know, cardiovascularly you, you, you certainly load it up because you've got a sort of that that bowel salvering of sort of holding your breath through high g corners it's like a sort of bit of a an nfl tackle or an nrl tackle out here or um they don't play any tough sports in europe do they when it comes to football but so i can't make the analogy but uh, <laughs> oh, they do rugby union. of course rugby union they do rugby union of course so when you have a tackle of course you got to hold your breath because that's the best way to sort of combat a high energy impact and it's the same in a, in a grand prix car we've we've got to sort of hold your breath for certain periods of time because it's hard to exhale in those periods so naturally your heart rate will, will go up if you're on a high high speed circuit like barcelona or silverstone or suzuka um those tracks are very very demanding somewhere like monza is very very easy you've got a lot of straights and low speed corners so tracks again play a bit of a, a crucial role but you know yeah a lot of time on the bike, um, you know, swimming a bit. Again, jack of all trades, legend of none. I think you know, having as many, uh, you know, being as you said, being as fit as possible, as robust as possible, as lean as possible, and having n- not really any half a kilo of muscle that wasn't really surplus to requirement. You know, I didn't really need to be in the gym, you know, for for the chicks on the old pecs. You know, if I didn't need the pecs for the car, you know, like I, if I sure we needed it but it's it's i didn't really need to be carrying stuff that wasn't there for the job and and that's how i saw it i was i was i tuned myself as best i could to to handle my profession and and no more no less and that's what was crucial so yeah it's hard to explain because we don't the thing that really makes us 
load up big style is is actually the fact that we don't move. So the, the G-forces are sort of subjected. They, they come to us, obviously, in a fast corner. You know, we, we get squeezed against the seat, which just does not move. We've got super, super, super tight seat belts because when we're braking in line, we want to make sure we're ready for the sort of, you know, 4.8G, which is pretty big um so yeah it's it's a mini car crash at every corner a street car crash but because and, and some people have three months off work for that but we're sort of trained and and committed and, and sort of conditioned for as i should say the for, for for that type of load so um yeah very interesting mate and a wet race is very easy like a wet grand prix physically when you're highly trained mentally it's, it's demanding but physically it's really really you know, 70% easier just because the grip is so much lower so we don't have the load on the body. So that's a, it's a much more straightforward affair physically, but mentally, of course, it's taxing. Mm. Mate, I'm still laughing at mini car crash at every corner. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's one of the yeah. best quotes I've ever heard to describe <laughs> Formula One racing. <laughs> yeah, so, and that's uh, the load, you know. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah it's... Uh, yeah, I remember sitting my mum in the car after one of my second last races and sat her in there and she said, I can't get my ass out of the seat. But anyway, she, she was, she was, it was hilarious because she said, because people, they just can't see anything either. They just cannot believe how low we sit, how our feet are. Even the driving position is so abnormal. People are used to, you know, they just see us, you know, reasonably similar to probably what we're exposed to in a street car. It's so, so different, you know, and, um, you know, that's another thing that the body, you need exposure to that to try and tr- train that, train that actual ergonomic, the ergonomics of that, the position of that in a gym or a bike or in the pool or is quite, is quite challenging. So you need sometimes, you know, clearly a bit of exposure in, mm. in, the, in the same environment which you're driving the car. Yeah, it's almost like you you need to be doing the thing that you're doing, and I often say that even within triathlon, I think if you want to be a good swimmer, a good bike, or a good runner, go be go swim, bike, and run. Um, look, you can do some supplemental stuff by going to the gym and that, but it, it really is if you want, you just go do the thing that you're going to go do, and it's it, the way you Match guys. Yeah, yeah one, well, you guys are almost lying down in those cars. I mean, it's like your feet are mm-hmm. so stretched out. And I remember I had uh, Daniel Ricciardo, a, another Australian Formula One Grand Prix driver and, and an incredible driver in his own right. Um, and he came to Noosa and uh, he's, I remember talking to his coach and, he, and he's a, I was taking Daniel for a mountain bike out the back there of Noosa and, and I, I said, oh, you know, what kind of a workout does he really need? And he said, well, actually, it's as much about him just escaping you know, about it's more mental and emotional training as it is a, a physical thing that we're looking for here. We just, because the demands on you guys throughout the year, whether it be media and all the pressures or the pressure from the team and the amount of money that's involved and, and it, it's so much pressure on a start line that, that often you're trying to find things to escape, to help you escape. And I think mountain biking, we've all been drawn to over the years because it is that escaping or going for a, a trail run or whatever it is, or being in the ocean, a great escapes for you guys. And, uh, you know, I, I want to now just quickly wrap things up, but one of just, one of my favorite things is, is mental strategies and, and visualizing and, and these kinds of things. And what I've loved about you and, and motorsport as a whole and is the way that you guys prepare yourself for each and every race throughout the entire year mentally and emotionally to get yourselves, you know, for the physical, um, race. And, and even from, you know, I was fascinated to learn that you guys do a walk, you walk the track 
you know, before each and every event, you then visualize every corner and stuff. Tell me about some of the techniques that you've done there and do you meditate and how have you been able to sort of master that kind of game? Yeah, I think the imagery was was personally quite a quite a big thing for for me to practice just because I tried to condition the brain for scenarios of course you know I'm out of the car now um I could be getting prepared to get in the car and I need that sort of 10 or 15 minutes to myself to to get ready for let's say qualifying for example where I I'm starting to put a picture together mentally of what ideal looks like, of, of what the ideal lap's going to look like, how's the car going to feel, you know, how quickly can I be at one with that car at the first corner because, of, you know, when I put the car on the limits up on its tippy toes, I need to know at turn one pretty much what I'm going to get because I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to get a bit of a feel on the out lap when, before I attempt my, my big flying lap, but I'm not going to, you know, the lap is the lap and, and, and the more feedback and the confidence I can get, the sooner the sooner the better because I'm going to the confidence breeds very, very good lap time. So to mentally put yourself into that environment um, to then try and trick the brain, of course, you, you, you smash enough imagery at it to, to, to give yourself enough exposure to say when the, when the time does actually come, when I'm in that scenario, I've actually had a, a small, fraction of a second like really granule of, of sort of already been there you know I, I this is mm. this is something I've already I've already done already played it in my mind and and even sometimes from the outside you know what does really awesome look like from the outside this is the line this is how I want to look and, and without getting too really massively geeked out on it but it was something which I felt that 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 um I used reasonably well it was it was you know it was it was important to to do that you would you know, would be of course suiciding your preparations to do imagery for example to show you know why it does work if you did somewhere another track if i'm in monaco and i start doing imagery in canada i mean of course that would be a disaster because mm. you know and that makes complete sense if people understand that but it, i'm just trying to give the give the example why it does work um for when you can lock on to a scenario and and sort of prepare your mind um, to to really just trick it that it's that this is the task that it's about to do. Mm. Um, how close can we get to that in a in a in a sort of a artificial sense in your mind, and then go out and execute for real? It was it, it's been an interesting question that I've asked a lot of my guests: the visualizing and word affirmations or whatever they're using for their mental strategies. And, uh, you know, a number of the guests are like, oh, I don't work with psychologists and I, I don't visualize. And then they'll go into a whole story about how they've visualized this event happening. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like, okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. You don't visualize yeah. that. That's fine. But one of the guests I had on Mark Allen, six time triathlon, oh, Ironman yeah, world yeah, champion, yeah. incredible yeah. athlete. And, um, and I really loved what he said and it put it in perspective that he said, look, he doesn't visualize positivity so much he just when he's his number one thing is to quieten the mind to get rid of the noise to get rid of the distractions and and it's one of the things i'm using a lot even now you know with the news media and everything else is the negativity and everything and i'm like it's not about turning around and being positive it's turning around and just reducing the noise of negativity let's reduce and turn it down and that for me is something that you guys as drivers in those formula one cars are doing instinctively there's no way you're yeah. racing a car once you're in that cockpit and you're going 
300k plus an hour and and like you said having a mini car crash at every corner mm-hmm. it, it's you need to be so present and yeah. just you be and your reactionary skills your ability to it's some of the you guys have been tested i think as having the fastest reactions in the world i might i might be wrong but i think i've heard that from some of the red bull testing in in the way you guys are able to hit those lights or grab a ball that's being dropped or yeah, anything certainly. else. I wouldn't be at the top of the charts, mate, but I'll watch the other guys do it. But yeah, they're pretty good. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure um, you're pretty good, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right, mate, being present, you know, and, and it's, it's just, isn't it this type rope, right, of, of having baggage in your head from previous experiences that can help you because experience is good. It does mm-hmm. make you better. But sometimes naivety is bliss. So then if you don't know, you don't know. So you're going to go and do into a, like we're going to go into a Grand Prix. It's the first time it's rained all weekend and our first racing lap is wet. Mm. Now, you know, when you're really, really, really experienced, most of the time at the end of your career, you're going to, you could overthink that initially. Are you, the long game, you're going to be in good shape because you're going to be very experienced and you're going to, you're going to pick the right scenarios <clears throat> most of the time in that first sort of 10, 15 minutes settling in period. But when you're young, you know, you, you're going to be, you know, pretty cavalier. You're going to have a crack and guess what? You might make a mistake. You might have a big shunt as well. We've seen Max Verstappen do this type of stuff where he's really, really, you know, <laughs> self-belief is super high and he's, he's, the trial and error is in front of everyone watching, which is, which is absolutely spectacular. That's what the sport's about. But, but you're right. The, the sort of experience side, um, you know, are you going to overthink this? Am I going to overcomplicate it? You know, look at the golfers when they get the yips. It's mm-hmm. purely probably about bad experiences in the past. You mm-hmm. can't have the yips if you've never been on the bloody green before because you've got no, you've got no baseline mentally to be tortured like that. Mm-hmm. But they are tortured because they can't even pull the putter back from the ball. Like, how does that work? But and they're pros, but they mm-hmm. cannot pull the putter back from the ball or whatever the yips. I mean. Hopefully a golfer out there is listening and they can correct me in their own mind there. I forgot that wrong, but anyway, I love it though. It's, it's true. Whole, I mean, for yeah, you guys, really, yeah, yeah like, it looks really challenging, you know, where, you know, if you're putting and you're sinking it from everywhere, the hole's huge and, you know, basketball, the hoop, you know, the, the, the rings, you know, they can, they're shooting three pointers from everywhere. So that's fascinating how the mind works like that. I mean, the, the, the old study from Chicksamahai, and I know, only know that from doing human movement studies, my degree back in, in Sydney, and it takes me back, and, and that state of flow, they call it, and, and athletes often call it being in the zone, and, and it's that ability to try and get into that, and, and I've even noticed it with my wonderful tennis playing that I've been playing, there's some days you go onto that court, and you can do whatever you want with that ball. I'll make it rain out here. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. it's like you can position that ball and you can do what you want with it. And other days, it's like, it's, and then you start, it starts going, you know, you, snowballing. You, you start to, ah, oh, I'm rubbish, I'm rubbish, I'm rubbish. And then it's this turning around. I even enjoy it in tennis, trying to turn my mind back to neutral. How do I do this? And that's why I love the tennis because it's you, you can be amazing one point and terrible the next point and you have to keep coming back to calming your mind and i think whereas when you're in a car or in your you're in a triathlon or whatever you kind of you're in the game already and you're going whereas i feel like tennis you have to keep coming back to going or golf you have to keep coming back to doing okay next point next shot and it's t- tell me a little bit just briefly while we're on the mind when you've had these massive crashes how quickly were you able to get yourself back to center or, or did that take years or what was that like? 
Oh, mate, we haven't. Yeah, haven't got too long at all, mate. Really to get to get ready. I and mean, sometimes it's in between sessions. Sometimes it's forty five minutes. Wow. You got to you get there's another new car and off we go. Um, that's what I said before about understanding the shunt. Yes, parceling that up in your mind, just sort of packaging that up in your mind, and saying, well, you know, how did that brew itself? How did that manifest itself into an error from your side, or you know? Um, and then, yeah, redialing back and, and building back up on it again. Um, but if it was a technical issue, then crack on as we were, you know, get mm. back out there and, and, and deal with it. So um, naturally, you know, sportsmen and women have to have to deal with, you know, like you say, the, the, the micro, the, there's so many failures along the way, the micro misjudgments, the micro, you know, because the, 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 the margins are so tight that we, we are in sync with, all the multiple errors we make as well. And that's the things that we keep trying to, to, to pull out of our profession to, to be better. Mm. Mate, it's been fantastic. So anybody that's enjoyed listening to Mark, which I truly have, and I, I could sit, and we do sit often for hours at a time and, and just chat about all of this. We do, sports. buddy. So we do, yeah. I, I wanted to get one down on file for everybody else to listen <laughs> to. But, you know, please go read, Mark's uh, autobiography, Aussie Grit. It's just phenomenal read. It's an easy read. It's, it's some, I think I read it like in two days. I just loved it. I, I didn't put it down. Yeah. So, you know, really great book. So I'm sorry you've had to repeat a lot of what's already in that book on the, on this conversation, but really is an inspiring story, mate. Because you know, like I said in the introduction, you know, from Queanbeyan, country Australia, to standing on the podium, your top step in Monaco and all of it. It's, it's just a, a great story. And the battle that you and Annie have had to, to get yourself into Formula 1 and then reach the top and, and then get, you know, win the, the World Endurance Car Championship with Porsche and, and all of that. And then the way you've carried on since. You just, you've been a, you're a remarkable man and been truly inspiring to me. And the other thing people should know is um, you've got your own apparel company, Aussie Grit Apparel. And honestly, without a doubt, it is the best mountain biking gear I've ever ridden. And I, and I, <laughs> I love and I love all the running gear you've got as well. But the mountain biking, uh, you know, the downhill pants that I wear, it's you've got mountain biking pants that are in between that, you know, how you see triathletes and cyclists try and get into mountain biking, they wear their lycra and they, they don't quite fit in. But then you've got those extra baggy pants, kind of extreme mountain bike. You, your pants are right in that middle ground where they're just the perfect combination. and They're, they're just fantastic. So Thanks, anybody Thanks. listening, go, go and check out the Aussie Grid Apparel. Um, absolutely mm. fantastic. Thank gear. you. What, what other um, gear recommendations or anything else you can advise people for optimizing their lives, Mark? Why we, why we oh. got you? Mate, loads of red wine, loads of red wine. Um, yeah, plenty of ice cream. Yeah, uh, good man. Yeah, no, all good, mate. It's been great catching up, mate. And uh, yeah. thanks for the embarrassing plugs there. And um, I hope to see you soon, mate, when all this is over. And, um, you know, as you know, give my love to family, mate. Yeah, will do, man. For somebody who doesn't like banging on about themselves, you do pretty well. Gosh, thanks, mate. I made the numbers up. I made the numbers up. I made the numbers up. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, uh, Stay on the line, Mark. But um, it's been wonderful. And if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe. I'd love any feedback as well. Cheers. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. 
I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.